Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds. Can you hear me okay? Everybody in the back here okay? Yeah? Uh, so it's great today to have um, one of our institution's um, trainees who's returned to us come to deliver Grand Rounds. And um, I'm going to welcome Brad Eric, the Section Chief of Hematology Oncology and an Associate Professor of Medicine, to introduce our speaker today. Thank you. Well, you took my, my theme because uh, um, uh, I think one of the, one of the notable things, and, and I hope, I hope that I, someone can say the same thing for some of you uh, down the line, uh, namely that, uh, so Paula came here um, uh, after doing her medical degree at Midwestern, and she did both the internal medicine and then a neurology uh, fellow residency, uh, inter internship residency here. Uh, and um, uh, one of her mentors uh, who, with whom she did some research and has some publications was Camille, Camillo Fadul, who many of you know, um, and then uh, left uh, to do uh, neuro-oncology training at Sloan Kettering, uh, where she worked with and has published with one of my old teachers, uh, Dr. Posner. Many of you may have, may have been forced, uh, I mean, encouraged to read his books. Um, uh, but then the great thing is that uh, upon Dr. Uh, Fadul's departure, she, we were able to uh, get her to come back and uh, take his place. So that sort of uh, full circle is, um, is always great to see. And so on days like these, when it's so beautiful out and you think that, oh, I've only got one more year or two more years here, I'm going to have to go to the real world, um, uh, not necessarily so. You, we may welcome you back. But between Sloan Kettering and here, she was director of neuro-oncology at Intermountain and Southern Illinois University. Uh, but now she's here doing the same. And today she'll talk to us about malignant gliomas. You can hear me? Yeah, I can hear myself. Okay. Well, it is very nice to be back. Thank you for coming this morning. I love talking about this stuff. I have no disclosures. So these are the objectives. I'm going to talk a little bit about glioma, just as a review uh, for those who don't spend their days um, reading about this. And we'll talk a little bit about the challenges in treating CNS tumors, the current standard of care, and then kind of the, the direction things are going in terms of new thoughts on the biology of these tumors, new information on the microenvironment of these tumors, and some of our newer approaches to treatment. You can see from this diagram, that CNS tumors are definitely uncommon relative to others. I mean, we're way over here on the left in red, and then way over on the right, you see prostate and breast, which are uh, represented by broken columns because of the big difference in frequency or incidence. Uh, but nonetheless, we still have 68,000 roughly uh, new diagnoses in 2015, 23,000 of which are malignant. And when we look at something like this, uh, it starts to give you a sense for why this becomes maybe a, a little more relevant. On the left side, this is a uh, diagram from the American Cancer Society, brain tumors aren't listed under estimated new cases. We didn't make the list. But we do creep on the list when you get to estimated deaths. And we go even further up the list when we look at national expenditures. 
So the impact of brain tumors is maybe a little is maybe underrepresented by the uh, incidence. So it's a tumor of relative rarity, and this kind of impacts research progress because you have to have some interest within the scientific community, within the public, um, to fold into the next one, which is funding. And the other big challenge we have in terms of research is being relatively rare. It can take a long time to to accumulate enough patients to get information that's useful. Uh, we have an example of this very recently where we a big study of low-grade gliomas finally came back after years of trying to accrue. That's low-grade gliomas are much less common than glioblastoma, telling us that a particular treatment was in fact useful and we don't really use that treatment much anymore. We've already transitioned to another drug. So despite its relative rarity, there's a big impact. These tumors are typically, uh, glioblastoma is considered essentially fatal. And even patients with tumors that aren't immediately fatal, there's a lot of disability. They can have their tumor under good control, but have a neurological disability that keeps them from returning to work in their normal lives and caring for themselves. Everybody remembers that these uh, tumors are based on their uh, cytology, so astrocytomas, oligodendrogliomas, ependymomas, the, the top two are what I'm going to refer to for the most part in terms of glioma. They're by far the most common. Microglia are uh, glial cells, but they, we really don't, we have microglia within tumors, but we really don't have a microglioma. Because these tumors are, it's exceptionally rare for a CNS tumor to, metast to truly metastasize outside of the CNS. So we really can't use the TNM staging, so we use grade. We have these four grades, and we kind of have this arbitrary line between two and one and two and three and four, calling one and two low grade and three and four high grade. That's at least traditionally how we've referred to these tumors. These are some of the histological criteria that we use to determine grade or we did. And then looking at grade and histology, we create these survival curves, and we, that's how we start to talk about how we expect people to do. So if you've got a grade two, uh, grade one is, is predominantly pediatric, so we don't talk about that as much. Uh, so grade two oligo, you're going to do better than a grade two astro. And if you have a grade three, you do worse than those two, but you're better off with an oligo than an astro again. And if you have a glioblastoma, you're at the bottom of the list. Uh, this is from MSKCC database. I think actually, although I'm, I'm looking more at comparison than absolute numbers, but if you are looking at the survival for glioblastoma, it looks a little bit higher than what I think is actually average, and that may reflect the fact that these people are at MSK, where they might keep going a bit longer and drive that number up because they're in a place where they're going to, they're kind of looking for those last-ditch efforts to maintain survival. But now we're moving beyond histology, and that's why I kind of give you that background. Um, we're starting to classify gliomas that have the same histology and grade into different behavior patterns because we know that they behave differently. There are some new approaches to low grade, to treatment of low grade glioma in particular because of this information. And we have a recent release just about a month ago from the WHO uh, that's starting to integrate molecular parameters. So I'm not going to go, this is a very busy diagram, and I just kind of blew up a piece of it just to make the point that uh, we start to look now at, at taking glioma and dividing it immediately into, uh, we have this mutation called IDH, which I don't have time to go into in detail, um, but the point is we kind of start initially with a molecular division. And then once we divide at this molecular level based on this tumor, we can divide further into these different frequencies. And so we are starting to kind of subclassify these tumors. And all of these tend to have a little bit different behavior. Some do better or worse than others. 
here's an example of a study where they looked at lower grade gliomas, so no glioblastoma here. They looked at 558 patients. And again, just uh, I wish I could touch on more what IDH mutations, uh, kind of what we know about them so far. But if you can just bear with me, the point I want to make is that patients who have an IDH mutation and have a 1P19Q co-deletion have a roughly 15.86 year median overall survival. Whereas if they do not have the IDH mutation, they're wild type. Um, oops. They're wild type, and they don't have this co-deletion, 2.35. So we're talking same histology and grade pooled together, significantly different outcome. So it's really not appropriate anymore for us to think just about grade and histology when we teach when we treat these patients. We have to learn. We have to consider these molecular characteristics, and perhaps we're a little more aggressive. Historically, it's been common for people to refer to a grade two diffuse astrocytoma as a benign tumor, um, which is something I never do with my patients because these tumors tend to grow and come back over time. Um, but I've seen many people who are told you have a benign tumor. And somebody who has a grade 2 diffuse uh, astrocytoma that is in that bottom category may do very poorly. And we're actually, in many cases, kind of calling those pre-glioblastoma because that's what they tend to do. This is a snapshot of the new WHO classification. So this is our official classification now. And you can see that we have categories, diffuse astrocytoma IDH mutant versus diffuse astrocytoma IDH wild type. So they're, they're, you know, they're characterized differently. So this is now being formally recognized. So let's switch gears and talk about the current treatment. So some of the inherent challenges in treating brain tumors. So we have the blood-brain barrier and the fact that it's considered an immunologically privileged site. So this is kind of an access issue. We have limitations to resection for tumors that are in deep areas of the brain or in eloquent areas of the brain. Neuronal susceptibility to damage. I mean, if you think about it, I guess theoretically we could deliver whole brain radiation in a high enough dose that we might even be able to cure glioblastoma, but the patient would be in pretty rough shape if you did that. So the brain can only tolerate so much in terms of radiation and other treatments, and we don't have good regenerative or reparative capacity in the brain. So the current standard of care is maximal safe resection. There does seem to be a clear benefit in uh, increasing extent of resection to the degree that you can. Uh, radiation therapy with concurrent temozolomide followed by adjuvant temozolomide for six cycles. We sometimes do more than six cycles, but the standard of care based on the study or from the study it was based upon is six cycles. This is the study, it's the STOOP protocol is how everybody refers to it because the study was done by Roger Stoop. This is in 2005. So you can see from this uh, survival curve that radiation, which was kind of the standard at that point, had a median survival of about 12 months. And for the, I think many, most of us have looked at these charts, but if you haven't, uh, Karnofsky, you know, you look at the, or I'm sorry, Karnofsky, the Kaplan-Meier curves, you look at the 50%, bring it over and come down, and that gives you a sense for median overall survival. That's how it's determined. So we went from about 12 to about 14. This was statistically significant. It was sufficient to make this the new standard of care, but it's certainly not impressive. Uh, it's just relative in glioma. 
it's a little bit better when we look at it this way. At 24 months, rather than 10% of folks being alive, it was 20, a little over a quarter. So that was slightly better than going from 12.1 months to 14.6 uh, months. Nonetheless, this was the best thing that we had, that had happened to this point. They looked at it five years later, found that the response was durable. People were still doing a little better if they had received radiation and temozolomide. This is when they first kind of discovered this uh, difference from MGM, uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, MGMT promoter methylation um, as a predictive factor. <coughs> so temozolomide, it's an alkylating agent. I won't dwell on all the details of the mechanism of action, but the point that I want to make is that the primary cytotoxic lesion that it causes is at O6-methylguanine, and MGMT, which is methylguanine methyltransferase, can remove this cytotoxic lesion and allow the tumor to repair the damage that we are trying to induce. And so tumors that have MGM promoter methylation, which inactivates MGMT, are more susceptible to temozolomide. Those that do not have this promoter methylation are, I put, quote, resistant to temozolomide. Um, it appears that patients, uh, at least in aggregate, probably derive some benefit from temozolomide even if they don't have MGMT promoter methylation, but they're less likely to, okay, um, and perhaps significantly less likely to. Depending on what you look at, maybe 50%, 40 to 50% of primary glioblastomas have MGMT promoter methylation. And I'm just briefly on one slide going to mention this because some of you may have heard about it. Um, this has been approved by the FDA for treatment in the upfront setting. It's been used in the recurrent setting for a long time, but it's been, it's been approved for upfront treatment of glioblastoma after radiation is finished. And basically it's a device that uses low intensity, intermediate frequency, alternating electrical fields to disrupt mitosis. Uh, and so it disrupts mitotic spindle formation because of the polarization. And so it can halt cell division and it can cause apoptosis. And they actually have good numbers. Uh, let's see if I put them on there. Yes, I did. So these are the survival curves. So progression-free survival went from four months to 7.1, and overall survival went from 15.6 to 20.5. So a five-month jump is um, fairly significant in glioblastoma. There are some challenges in using this device, but nonetheless, they have numbers to support the approval. There's no clear indication of what to do. There's no algorithm for what to do at recurrence. So we have the standard of care in the upfront setting. We know glioblastoma in particular will always come back. And so we have to think about what to do when it recurs. We talk about alternative systemic cytotoxic therapy, focal delivery, something, for example, like carmustine wafers. They have to undergo another surgery in order to do that. Anti-angiogenesis agents, so bevacizumab is approved. It's the drug that's approved for monotherapy in the recurrent setting, and it's often a go-to, but it's not a cytotoxic drug. It's an anti-angiogenesis drug. So it sometimes is compared or is uh, combined with something like lamustine. And we've looked at some, t some uh, agents that target molecular pathways, like TKIs for the most part. The challenge is we have a lot of pathways that glioblastoma can use, and it's very good at finding a new one when you block one. I suppose theoretically, if we had a drug that blocked all of these pathways, it might work, except that I can't imagine what the side effects would be. 
So failure of all of these different approaches, at, uh, not just at recurrence, but in the upfront setting too, to do anything significant to improve the dismal prognosis was part of the drive to look at immunotherapy, which is really what I want to talk about today. Um, and so it's been used in other settings prior to being considered in glioblastoma. And part of the reason for that is that there's this traditional view that the immune system is inactive in the CNS, that it doesn't interact effectively with the systemic immune system. And that's partly based on some of these factors that tissues grafted in the CNS would survive longer when they were, whereas they were rejected quickly elsewhere. Uh, we presume that there's limitations of leukocyte entry across the blood-brain barrier. There are, there are no native T cells within the CNS, and there's presumably no uh, CNS lymphatics. But growing evidence shows that the CNS is immunocompetent and that there is interaction with the systemic immune system. Uh, some basic things, we know that there's disruption of the blood-brain barrier in many cases. The CNS antigens and T-cells can access the cervical lymphatic tissue through the Verkau-Robin spaces. Activated peripheral T-cells and antibodies can circumvent the CNS to find those target antigens. And CNS microglia are shown to be capable of presenting tumor-associated antigens to T lymphocytes. So we're seeing some evidence that there's definitely activity. Interestingly, the scientists at UVA uh, recently demonstrated that uh, mice have functional lymphatic vessels. They were able to label them, as you see on the picture on the left. <clears throat> And they've actually proposed the picture on the right for a new anatomical chart and medical text. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but that was their proposal. And then we know there are active CNS immune responses in a lot of neurological disease. That's the problem in these diseases. And finally, we have a couple of long-recognized associations um, with immunology and brain tumors. Since the 18th century, there have been recorded observations of patients doing better uh, if they had a perioperative infection, and I have definitely seen this. Um, there are some patients who have survived much longer than they should have. In many cases, they've had recurrent infections. Sometimes they've had to have the bone flap removed. They can't have it put back on. Um, they have infections when they try to put in other substances, and so they end up with a very misshapen skull, sometimes they're wearing helmets. Um, everything can look very bad, but they're living years longer than they should have. And then there's a well-established inverse relationship that always seems to be uh, recapitulated in epidemiological studies that there's the risk of glioma is uh, inversely associated with allergies. So people with asthma, emphysema, and hay fever are less likely to get a glioma. So we know that a lot of cancers have this have a multi-layered process that suppresses endogenous anti-tumor immunoreactivity reactivity that includes GBM. And so this results ultimately in immune tolerance. Systemic factors that we know affect immune reactivity and glioblastoma include de decreased T cell responsiveness, decreased immunoglobulin levels, decreased dendritic cell function, and an increase in circulating T regulatory cells, so the ones that tamp down the immune system. Plus, we give a lot of these patients high-dose steroids for cerebral edema, so we know those are immunosuppressive, and we subject them, of course, to chemo and chemoradiation, which can uh, lead to lymphopenia. 
And then local immunosuppression can also create this perimeter of defense. Uh, what we find is MHC molecule downregulation, production of uh, immunoinhibitory cytokines, uh, the infiltration of Tregs that are immunosuppressive, and then impairment of T cell function when the, when the killer T cells do have access. Uh, things like hypoxia can prevent them from being able to exert their effects. We also know that many cancers increase expression of immune checkpoint regulators, such as PDL1, ligand, the uh, programmed death ligand. Um, and you know, these are normal things. We need these we need these immune checkpoint regulators to prevent autoimmune disease and collateral damage. Um, but these can be hijacked by tumors. So looking at immunotherapy for malignant glioma, there's three categories that are really uh, being heavily explored, immune checkpoint therapy, cellular immunotherapy, and vaccination therapy. Let's make sure we're doing a pan time. Oh, yeah. So cellular immunotherapy, adoptive T cell transfer. So this is a, a strategy where you infuse T cells with high avidity against tumor antigens. Early on, this involved either in vivo or ex, ex vivo expansion. So either you did a subcutaneous injection of irradiated tumor cells along with a white blood cell growth factor and allowed that to expand in vivo. Or you could get autologous T cells and co-culture them with tumor cells. Advances are a little, so now what we have are uh, more specific things. So in vitro expansion of autologous CMV specific T cells, and I'll come back to this CMV topic momentarily, but uh, brain tumors, a lot of brain tumors, not all, but a vast majority of them exhibit um, peptides, CMV peptides, not the virions. Uh, and so this is a way to target the tumor and not the surrounding tissue. Again, we'll touch on that in a moment. but. Uh, point is, CMV-specific T-cells are being engineered. We also have next-generation T-cell transfer therapy that includes genetic modification. So what you can see here is this chimeric antigen receptor, or a CAR T-cell. So it's reprogrammed to express this monoclonal antibody binding domain. Uh, so, so let's see, whoops, I keep pushing the wrong button. Here we go. I think everybody can probably see this diagram without my pointer, but uh, basically we take the CAR genes, insert them through, via a vector into the T cell, and it produces this receptor on the surface of the T cell, and that is specific to the tumor antigen that we're targeting. These are kind of exciting and very interesting, actually. And even that has advanced since that's come out. We, this was the initial kind of uh, CAR T cell well, I'll go over it a little bit here. So we have basically an extracellular domain, a transmembrane domain, and an uh, intracellular. Here we have second and third generation CAR T cells. And without going into too much of the anatomy of it, you can see within the T cell itself that we have these extra co-stimulatory molecule, molecules. And basically that, those modifications are designed to help with replicated potential, effector function, and in vivo persistence which is, you know, the durability of response is important as well. So theoretically, we can use CAR T cells to target any antigen. One of the key things that's very exciting is that it bypasses MHC recognition. 
the restriction and recognition, I guess, the need for recognition. Uh, and so if you can bypass that step, because we have MHC molecule downregulation as one of the tumor's uh, strategies to try to uh, suppress, um, then this is uh, an opportunity for us to treat. We do get very robust responses with these, and so the big challenge on the other end of that is too robust a response can uh, come back to bite you. So you, if you end up with something like a cytokine storm, which is one example that they that um, there have been fatal cytokine reactions, um, obviously a lot of things can uh, take you down before the tumor if you have this sort of issue. But we do see positive responses in particular in refractory leukemia. And they're looking at uh, EGFR-V3, we'll touch on again in a moment as well. So that is a mutated version of EGFR. It's constitutively active. So right now we have clinical trials going on targeting EGFR-V3 and HER2. We also have something called BITES, so bispecific T-cell engagers. So this also uh, activates, to, uh, activates T-cells without the requirement of uh, co-stimulatory molecules or MHC peptide recognition. But it's by do, it does so with a synapse. So in this case, we have the T-cell up here. We have the target cell here. This in the middle is the BITE, the bispecific T-cell engager. So it allows the synapse between the cytotoxic T cell and the tumor cells. So again, independent of co-stimulatory regulation, but also able to um, lead to clonal T cell expansion and persistence of effect. We're all familiar with vaccinations, how they work in the infectious disease world. Uh, they generate robust yet specific responses and trigger immunological memory. There are a couple of broad categories, uh, tumor-associated antigens and tumor-specific antigens. So tumor-associated antigens, they're preferentially expressed by tumor cells but also found on normal cells, whereas tumor-specific antigens are exclusive to tumor cells, and each type has advantages and limitations. So the advantages of the tumor-associated antigen, so again, the one that is also found on normal cells but preferentially on tumor cells, are that they are prevalent and frequently expressed. Because they are prevalent, you can use these off-the-shelf, so to speak, synthesized peptides. You can create peptide cocktails using these substances that you already have, and that can elicit broad anti-tumor uh, reactivity. And these synthetic peptides can be designed to exhibit increased binding affinity and so forth. limitations is that a tumor-associated antigen, um, it typically generates a, a weak response, at least relative to a tumor-specific, because you have some degree of central tolerance that can come into play. Uh, and then it, there's an HLA restriction as well. But there are some good initial reports of synthetic uh, tumor-associated antigen peptide vaccines in GBM. In this case, uh, they looked at four different peptides, and there was a positive immune response of, against at least one of these vaccine-targeted antigens in 58% of patients. The regimen was well-tolerated, no grade three or four adverse events, and no evidence of autoimmune reactivity, which are important points in these early studies. They, out of 22 patients, so small study, two patients had a radiographic response, one with a sustained complete response, and nine out of 22 patients had at least 12, had at least 12 months survival. So that's pretty impressive if you 
notice that I underlined above that this is a recurrent uh, malignant glioma. So 12 months, a minimum of 12 months survival is pretty good for recurrent. Mm -hmm. In this study, this was another phase one, they looked at newly diagnosed rather than recurrent disease. They looked at six different antigens, and they found, you know, part of this uh, process in the beginning, of course, is to look at immune response, not just survival. Um, and so they found that at least three target antigens were expressed in every patient, and 75% of them expressed all six antigens. And then they did find that a median follow-up progression-free survival was 16.9 months, and median overall survival 38.4 months. Again, this is an early, this is a phase one study, so there's a lot more to do, but these are encouraging findings. TSAs, tumor-specific antigens, offer the advantage of highly potent responses. They typically elicit very robust immune responses, more similar to what we see in infectious disease vaccines. But they can be challenging to exploit because they're either only expressed in a subset of patients, and we'll talk about one of those in a moment, or they're patient-specific. So here's an example of something that is only expressed in about 30% of glioblastomas. This is the epidermal growth factor receptor variant 3 that I referred to before. So about 30% of glioblastomas exp uh, express this. We're limited then to which patients can benefit from it. Nonetheless, they did a study using rindapepamid and bevacizumab. Bevacizumab is the FDA-approved treatment in the setting of recurrence um, and use it versus bevacizumab alone. So progression-free survival was better, 27% at six months versus 11% in the control, and overall survival was 12 months versus 8.8. .8. And again, 12 months is not bad for recurrent glioblastoma. They did try this in the newly diagnosed setting. They reached accrual, but they recently halted this study after the intro analysis showed there wasn't a benefit in the upfront setting. Also looking at human cyto cytomegalovirus. So as I mentioned, the DNA and the cytome cytomegalovirus <laughs> proteins, just a moment. The proteins, but not the infectious virions, have been demonstrated in most glioblastomas, also in some of the lower grade gliomas, but not in the adjacent normal tissue. <clears throat> So there are several efforts underway to exploit this. Um, looking at a vaccine uh, using dendritic cells with and without autologous T-cell transfer. Vaccine looking at the HCMV peptide when newly diagnosed, and also generation of polyclonal CMV, uh, I referred to this earlier, polyclonal CMV-specific T-cells for adoptive transfer. So a lot of strategies trying to uh, capitalize on the fact that this is you know, true of many, of many tumor types. You want to capitalize on the things that are specific to the tumor, and this is a perfect example. There was increased enthusiasm for, for this because it's been observed, not well proven in a uh, structured study, but it's been observed that patients who are treated with valgacyclovir uh, had potent CD8 responses and prolonged survival and newly diagnosed glioblastoma. Vaccinations that are derived from tumor lysate offer advantages of both uh, tumor-associated and tumor-specific antigens and doing so on a patient-specific basis. So there's no uh, HLA subclass restrictions, so theoretically you could use it for any glioblastoma patient. And um, we'll talk a little bit about one of the most common ones in just a moment. The challenge with using tumor lysate 
is that you do have to have surgery because you need some tumor to make the uh, vaccine and you have to have enough tumor to make the vaccine. So sometimes even when people have surgery and they're provided with tissue, if it's too necrotic, then it, you can't uh, create the vaccine. Uh, biopsy is always is essentially always insufficient to be able to create it. So you also have to have enough tumor left showing up on your MRI scan to know you can harvest enough to create the vaccine. And vaccine preparation takes several weeks. So while it has some scientific, from a scientific perspective, it has a huge advantage. Practically speaking, it's harder to um, make it available. <clears throat> so the dendritic cell vaccine, as, the, as part of the DCVAC study, this is probably the most well-known. So they take tumor tissue, um, and then they also take peripheral blood, and they culture these dendritic cells that are specific uh, to the patient's tumor. And then it's injected subcutaneously. And then, of course, we get the educated dendritic cell that activates other cells. Most importantly, the uh, initial numbers are looking very good. Uh, so standard of care time to progression, and this is based on that initial stoop study that I showed you from 2005. So that standard of care, 6.9 months is time to progression, and it was two years. And overall survival went from 14.6 months to three years. So that's a big jump. One of the, and, and I've used this, and one of the nice things too is there's essentially no side effect to this uh, treatment. It's the patient's own tissue, and it's, there's not even a site reaction when we inject it subcutaneously. So there's almost no downside to using this if you can get it, right? So that's the big challenge is making sure that you have sufficient tumor tissue that they are successful in creating the vaccine. Some of the patient-related variables in terms of vaccination therapy that have been established, because DCVAC study has been going on for a long time, we have, they have been able to glean a lot of this information. So some of the studies uh, have shown, though, that age is a factor. That's not a surprise. That often is. The degree of prior treatment, so have they been there through fourth-line chemotherapy before they try the study. Um, Volume of tumor burden. That's an interesting one because I made reference to extensive resection, and one of the things that they've found is that elevated systemic um, Treg cells at diagnosis decrease when you do the tumor resection, and then when the tumor grows back, the Treg cells uh, increase again. So it may be that that extensive resection has something to do with changing the T cell ratio. So in any case, as I said, preliminary data show that younger patients do better. Often younger, younger patients just do better. Um, so two modifications that they're looking at, this is what I wanted to talk about, is incorporation of lysates or mRNA derived from glioma cells isolated from resected tumors. And vaccination with the tumor antigen, um, the, the heat shock protein, this is the one I was looking for. So this is actually open at many centers. So heat shock proteins are upregulated by stress. They're kind of a natural adjuvant um, to the immune response. And so there's a randomized phase two study going on right now, um, which is something that we can enroll in here. This we do have available here. Um, one of the challenges both here and elsewhere that I've seen is, again, they're having a hard time getting sufficient tissue to um, move forward with the study. And even when we get what we think is the right weight, it may not be, as I said, it may be necrotic. But this is something that is available here. The last category is immune checkpoint mediators. 
So these function to optimize um, normal T cell normal T cell responses. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I've been trying not to cough the entire time. The longer you try not to cough, the more it just, you know, it's coming. So these function to optimize appropriate responses, as I was saying. So when we, I talked a little bit about these um, checkpoint inhibitors functioning as the brakes. So checkpoint inhibitors, we need them. It's important to have them to, to prevent autoimmune disease. Um, but as I said, tumors can hijack this mechanism. <clears throat> so some of the targets for a therapeutic blockade are CTLA-4, PD-1, and PDL one so CTLA-4 became popular, it's apolimumab. That became pretty well known when we saw the results in melanoma. So a very, very dismal prognosis when you had metastatic melanoma, and then ipilimumab really made a difference in survival, and the response was pretty remarkable. So that's when we first started hearing a little bit about this immune checkpoint targeting. Since then, we've started looking at PD-1 and PD-L1. And if you look here at this uh, cartoon, See if I can see it from here. Okay, so this is kind of the normal process of, T of presentation, tumor cell, T cell, antigen presentation. And so on the T cell, we have these PD-1 receptors. Like I said, we need them because we need to be able to shut off the process. But tumor cells will express the PD-1, PD-L1, so the PD-1 ligand, um, in an effort to shut down the T cell, which they often effectively can do. And tumors not only express it, but they can really heavily express it. So that's our target. So we know that cancers uh, utilize physiological processes to promote survival. We see that in upregulated up angiogenesis and overexpression of MGMT, the enzyme that, enzyme that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so as I said, a lot of malignancies overexpress PDL1. And this is an example of kind of what we've already talked about. So it's just another cartoon here. You can see at the top T cell activation. So this is the normal sequence of antigen presenting cell, T cell receptor, um, MHC molecule. Here's the antigen. And then you need this co-stimulation in order to activate the T cell. In both of these cases, we see inhibition in one case because CTLA and the other PDL1 and PD1. So PDL1 expression correlates with tumor grade. So the higher the tumor grade, the more likely that they're going to overexpress PDL1. And it's been demonstrated in established GBM cell lines, and in the primary tumors themselves, and also in the GBM stem cells. GBM stem cells, <coughs> excuse me, are part of the problem. <coughs> I'm sorry, um, are part of the problem, we think, uh, that leads to recurrent disease. Stem cells tend to be resistant to radiation, resistant to chemotherapy. They sit quiescent, and then um, that's one of the theories is that these quiescent stem cells are what ultimately lead to recurrence, even when we seem to have a complete resection and a good response. So in this study, they administered the anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody to mice with intracranial tumors. 
and their mean and overall survival went from 25 days to 53 days. And so, I, you know, mouse days to human years is sometimes a difficult conversion, but it's pretty obvious when you look over here at the survival curve that there's a huge difference when we get over to radiation plus the anti-PD-1 antibody. What is also interesting is that the anti-PD-1 antibody alone uh, did not produce the remarkable response that we saw when we combined it with radiation. And apparently this is what the apparatus looks like for irradiating a mouse tumor. They found there was a difference in T cell population. So again, only really uh, predominant in radiation plus anti-PD-1 antibody. So the CD8 cells went up, Tregs went down, and so the ratio obviously improved. And then again, this is that survival curve. So this is the interesting thing is really how much more we're able to learn about that tumor microenvironment and the effect that these treatments are having. In this study, they had a cohort of long-term survivors that they considered cured. Uh, and they did a flank rechallenge, and the tumor didn't grow. So presumably, this indicates immunological memory. There are several uh, trials underway. Uh, looking at PDL1 and PD1 immune checkpoint inhibition as well as CTLA4. So there's a phase two study for recurrent glioblastoma that's randomizing to nivolumab, which is an anti-PD1, nivolumab plus ibalimumab, the CTLA4, or bevacizumab alone. And bevacizumab is the standard of, is a standard of care drug. Well, I don't know if you'd call it a standard of care. It is a FDA-approved drug for treatment in recurrent glioblastoma. And there's a phase one study that's looking at a newly diagnosed glioblastoma, adding either nivolumab or ipilimumab to temozolomide or both. So that would be after chemo radiation is completed during the adjuvant temozolomide phase. And they're also looking at another drug called pitilizumab, <coughs> which is another anti-PD-1 to use in pediatric patients with diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, which can be a rather devastating condition and is certainly not amenable to resection and some of the other things that we try to do. So some of the potential immune-related effects. So, so far, it does not appear that this has been um, uh, extremely problematic. But we do know that some of these immune effects can occur. And they occur at different times. Some tend to occur early and some a little bit later. And you'll see that there's a, a theme to these, all of these um, reactions. So rash, colitis, hypophysitis. I mean, we have a lot of itises, so a lot of inflammatory responses. There, most of the time, as I say here, it's moderate and manageable. But there, are, there have been some severe and life-threatening uh, incidents. So concluding points. CNS does interact in an effective manner <clears throat> sorry, with the peripheral immune system to generate meaningful responses. And effective anti-tumor activity by the immune system offers the potential for eradication of existing tumors, but also prevention of future recurrence if we can generate an immune response. Uh, and we're starting to see encouraging results with these um, three areas and also combinations that are being explored quite a bit as well. So we're still early in this process, but it's active, and that piece of it's very encouraging. And that concludes my lecture. Any questions? Thank you. Actually, I'm going to remove this. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you think you'll hold out for <laughs> yes, I, questions? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> like I said, the longer you try to suppress it, the more I just can resist. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Civil Water. Yes. Wait <laughs> a um, So, any questions from the audience here? Yes, Rich. This is more of an immunologic approach. Is there much in the molecular profiling for the Well, certainly in the setting of glioblastoma, where we have such limited options and we do everything we can do. So we do send these profiles and look for actionable mutations. Um, unfortunately, more often than not, much more often than not, we get a list of mutations that all say they're not actionable, that there's no target drug. But um, particularly in glioblastoma and, in, and even more so in recurrent glioblastoma, I would certainly send for something like that. And if there was anything that looked like it was worth trying, we would try to, try to get that drug by whatever means necessary. So I think in that setting in particular, um, it's worth trying. A question from Dan here. Yes. So it occurs to me that, excuse me, that you might um, have a simpler way of suppressing PD-1 by using microRNAs to suppress uh, translational um, activity so that the PD-1 wouldn't be expressed. That sounds brilliant and beyond the scope of my expertise, um, but that's, I wonder if that's even been discussed in the literature. I haven't specifically looked for that, but I find that intriguing. No. You wouldn't. I mean, for the same reason, you wouldn't have to target the tumor with the PD-1. Um, it's only expressed really heavily on the itself. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what percentage of the glioblastoma patients are on clinical trials? I mean, it's, it's, there sounds like so much potential, and it's such a rare cancer that unless, unless there's a real push to to enroll a, a, a significant percentage, is gonna, it's going to stay at a slow pace. There has to be a significant push. Um, and there are, there's still a bit of a nihilistic approach in many cases to glioblastoma. So I think it depends on who the patient ends up with. Uh, because I, I still think, I still have patients come to me and tell me what they've been told. So I think in many cases, people are essentially told it's dismal and they have a short period of time and they should spend it with their families, which is not an, not an unreasonable thing to tell someone I do that in the right setting. Um, but I, I think that people give up. Uh, so if they don't get to the right center and the right person. So we absolutely need to push for it. Could, could you just say, expand maybe a little on that and talk about the logistics of getting people to the right clinical trial in a, in a timely way? How, how, how do you make that happen? Uh, by being pushy, usually. <laughs> um, so, right. So, so obviously, I, when I was in, at SIU, there were a lot of outlying areas, little kind of farming communities, because this was central Illinois. And so you have the risk of not even hearing about a patient. And so you hope that you even hear about them. Um, once they make it to you, the, one of the first things that we do, of course, is screen for our studies. Am I too close to that? Screen for our studies. And then if they don't match, we start thinking about other studies and getting them out to these facilities. And we actually have pretty good relationships here with facilities that are nearby. And we try to collaborate and share the patient. So I think that's a big piece of it is encouraging, is uh, assuring the patient that we will try to manage as much as we can nearby if we can't enroll you in one of our studies. But we need to, have, we need more studies. Yes. Hi. Uh, that was a lovely talk, Paula, and thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to put a plug in just for something that we're doing here. Um, regionally, uh, in the last several years, we've made a huge push to 
um, take neuro-oncology as a regional collaboration rather than competition, um, and precisely for the reason that um, less than 10% of newly diagnosed gliomas enter clinical trials. And so uh, in October, we'll be the host of the Northern New England Neurology Meeting. Uh, this is our third year, um, and it's spearheaded by ourselves, um, Mass General and Yale. And the, the whole purpose is to collaborate regionally so that the right patient gets to the right trial because it's not feasible to have all trials open at all centers. Um, and really, um, because there's so few neuro-oncologists in the country, most patients are treated by medical oncologists who don't prioritize getting people to trial. Um, so, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Is there any indication or hint that uh, radiation interferes with the induction of anti-tumor immune responses? And uh, the reason why I asked that, I was wondering if the standard of care could sort of undercut the efficacy of the newer therapies. And if you get into this interesting, which one would you pick kind of question? Yeah, actually, uh, now, uh, if I refer specifically to the immunotherapy piece, um, Manesh Mehta, who, who kind of heads up a lot of these studies in uh, radiation oncology, uh, was talking the other day about something they're doing in-house, and he was, said there, not only was there a synergistic response between radiation and immunotherapy, but that he was surprised by how good it was. So anecdotally, there's nothing that I know of that's you know, published yet on that topic, but anecdotally from somebody who's kind of at the top of his field uh, in radiation for neuro-oncology, it sounds like it's a positive. Say something more about that interaction. Right. So that is so that is uh, something that you always have to hesitate to actually put in your presentation because it's very preliminary. Um, these have been small groups of patients, very small ends, uh, where they had. I think initially they had valgancyclovir incidentally, and it was kind of observed. And now they've utilized it in a couple of small in-house type of evaluations and said that they feel that there's a response. It is not a large scale. Um, it was enough to intrigue people to follow that lead, but there's, it's not something that is ready to be utilized by any means or su well supported enough to be utilized. Any other questions? I think we're having mercy on you. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Well, my voice is back now. I did well the first half. So thank you very much. It was a wonderful talk.